0: Elijah as he pleased. Uh and depending on how we look at it, either he please Jezebel because he fears his life, or there's a little bit more to it. I'm going to take the position that this isn't about Elijah being afraid. This is a uh, uh something else going on here, but we'll get into that. So uh we'll finish up in chapter eighteen, just a, a real a final thought, but then um uh, Let's start reading in chapter 19 verse 1. It's all standard to read God's Word. <clears> here <throat> come our late but we'll, we better get started here. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to four of the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, broke in pieces of rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the fire was, the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the hand, from the sword of Haziel, shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the the need which that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him may be seated. So very interesting text, and I think one that I I believe has generally gone completely misunderstood. It's it's become a lesson about how Elijah can be uh, on on the mount, literally on the mount. One moment serving the Lord, and then all of a sudden he's running from his life because he's scared of a woman, and the fickleness of faith. Which all that is certainly things that happen. We can be on the mount one moment, in the valley the next, and we can we're, we can be very consistent. But I think that there's a little bit more going on here than that. So that's the position we want to take. I just wanted to. Mentioned last week, as we dealt with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that the fire coming down it bypassed, remember it bypassed all the people, and it and it just burned up the, the altar and the sacrifice. And of course, in the Old Testament, sacrifices are types of Christ, a picture of the cross, where Christ bears the wrath of God on our behalf, so that God can graciously bypass His wrath upon. Uh, us and put it upon the substitute. So there is always that that we see in these sacrifices. The same God used his servants to call sinners to repentance and he, he makes disturbing commands. Uh, Elijah said, kill all the prophets of Baal and, and the Lord, following the Lord is not always easy. Following the Lord will be difficult. <clears throat> but, um, he is who he is and, uh, he does not change, so we better. And when He calls us to serve Him, when He calls us to go through the valley of trial, we, in tribulation, we've got to be ready to do that. Serve so You know, Elijah here uh, is doing unpleasant things, but that's part of what he's been called to do. And so it's just a reminder that that if, if we're Christians, we must be committed to the Lord. And sometimes we just need to stop and remind ourselves who we are, who the Lord is to us, what our duty is, and and, and that should be something that we need to, if not daily, or periodically, remind, you know, recommit ourselves to Christ, to remember, to, to, to keep that before us, lest we relax and and so forth. And so we, we kind of see here that the grace of God, but also the severity of God in the way he uh, deals with the people there and to remind ourselves that judgment is coming to judgment is coming upon us one way or another. It's either going to be on the sacrifice of Christ or not, or on ourselves. But that brings us then to the aftermath of this. And, of course, that begins in verse 41 of chapter 18, um, where uh, Elijah tells Ahab to go up and have a feast, more or less, because rain's coming. And, And this whole passage there's a sense in which the chapter nineteen could begin at verse forty one here it there is this there's a lot of difficulty in trying to understand what's going on here uh, it's just not an easy passage for sure when you think about the interaction between the Lord and elijah that we just read about and, and the question that God you know asked elijah twice what are you doing here seeming to watch elijah to make a statement and uh, he feeds elijah so that he can go to the journey and, the, and interesting enough the journey is to Mount Sinai which is where the original covenant was made and so I think all that comes into play when trying to understand what's going on here uh, then we find out here that Elijah once he uh, in verse 19 he has um, his uh, servant go up he, he goes up the Mount Carmel and he he goes to a place. He's pray. He prays seven times, and each time he prays, he sends a servant up to uh, watch to see if a cloud is coming, if rain is coming. And that seventh time, remember, the servant says, "I see a cloud the size of a man's hand." And uh you know, I imagine he put his hand up like that, or who knows exactly what it meant, but it was small. And Elijah takes that as that finally rain's coming. So he he says, "Go tell Ahab to to take a chariot back to." Um, uh, Jezreel, uh, tell him rain's coming, and he, he, he needs it to he needs to get going lest he get caught in the mud. Uh And then he says, "The spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he outruns the chariot to and gets to Jezreel before Ahab does." And again, you should you think, "Well, what's the point of that?" That's actually his I think his fourth miracle. And so there's just a lot of interesting things going on that we want to consider today <clears throat> um, i would say one thing as far as what's going on here is that uh i think elijah probably has assumed as probably any of us would uh or at least most of us that after this great display at mount carmel uh there's going to be repentance. ahab's going to repent nahas is going to repent there's, there's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't at this point, right? So he thinks that things are going to finally turn around. And I think a case can be made that that is, uh, part, of, part of what's going on here. But of course we know that, uh, displays don't convert souls. We talked about that. In fact, uh, well, here, you know, let me just, uh, got ahead of myself. Just by review's sake. We saw last week with the prophets of Baal that though the world forsake the Lord, we will not. The majority is often wrong. The world is always wrong. So Elijah standing by himself, but since he was doing the Lord's work, that he was in the right. If the Lord is on your side, or better, perhaps we can say, if you are on His side, if you are in the majority. <clears throat> Elijah didn't want to teach about God. Remember. We finished with this. He expected action when one met the Lord. It was, he wasn't there at Mount Carmel trying to teach people about God. He certainly was doing that. But in learning about God, it requires an action from us that there's, you know, truth, it changes. We're to be transformed by it. And, And so Elijah puts this commitment upon the people. It's time to make a decision. Serve one or the other. Like Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can't halt between these two opinions, uh, you know, because it's a, to do nothing is as moral a statement as to do something. If I will not, if I disobey the Lord, if I ignore the Lord, that is a moral action, right? We might say it's an immoral action. But anyway, in uh, Matthew uh, 11, remember that Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Beseda, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sacked off and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more preferable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So they, Israel had the very Son of God himself doing the works um, in front of them, and they rejected that. And so even seeing the Son of God perform miracles doesn't change their mind. Um, and so, I think that the idea here is that th- th- these cities knew this was the Messiah. He had evidenced himself as being the Messiah. He had done the works of the Messiah, but they did not want the Messiah, and so they rejected him anyway. And the the poor and and Bethsaida didn't have that. They, if they had seen somebody do this, they would like like with Jonah, they would have repented. Israel was deliberately rejecting their Messiah. I think that's kind of the point he's making there. <clears throat> so this is probably Elijah's way of saying that it's time to celebrate the end of the famine you know, by having this feast. And I think he's probably assuming too much. You know, why wouldn't he, as I said before? Um, one thing before we get into chapter 19 is also that Elijah prays seven times. Seven times for what God has already told him is going to happen. And so just wanted to remind ourselves about that, that we pray because we are commanded to pray. We don't pray because um, it's some way to manipulate God. God wants his people to come to him and to ask for these things. And so he prays um, until um, the Lord answers. And just an interesting verse, I thought, concerning this too. In Ezekiel 36, 36, it says, In the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places. I have reclanted that which is desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. So, after saying, I have spoken, I will do it. A very sovereign statement, right? Then he says, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. To increase the people like a flock. Like the flock of sacrifice. Like the flock of Jerusalem during the appointed feast. So shall the wait cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So he, he says I will do it. It's like with Elijah. I'm going to do this but I'm going to have my people ask me to do this. And is that not what we do? If we come every day of course but certainly when we come to church we are asking God for those things that he has promised to give us. But if we are silent, so God will be silent as well. If we don't care enough to pray and to obey him, if, if we're not burdened enough to pray, then uh, we'll find out perhaps that it's not God's will in that particular case to uh, work among us. So we don't want to ever become uh, hyper-Calvinist. That's just a form of hyper-Calvinism. Say, well, God's decreed it all. Whether I pray or not doesn't matter. That, that's just blatant heretical thinking and we don't want to do that. <coughs> so he outruns here in verse 46, uh, he outruns Ahab's chariots, which is about 16 miles, they say. And, uh, some, you know, I would suggest that he's running because he thinks Ahab is going to institute reforms and stand up to Jezebel. Perhaps he wants to be there. Certainly by outrunning Ahab, it's just another demonstration to Ahab that he is a true prophet of God, that Yahweh is the is true God. Perhaps he wants to be part of the celebration. I mean, we really don't know for sure. But as we come to chapter 19, we kind of find out who wears the pants in uh, the royal family. And instead of a hero's welcome, I think he's somewhat shocked that Jezebel, <clears throat> in light of the obvious, says, I'm going to kill you just like you killed the prophets of Baal by this time tomorrow. <clears throat> and he's shocked. And rightly so, I guess, right? And so we come to verse 3, which, how we interpret verse 3 will determine how we look at the rest of this chapter. He says that, then he was afraid. In the Hebrew, we learn, I've, I've been... You know, from, in the study that it technically can mean afraid, but it basically means to see. And you gotta use the context to determine what, how it's to be used. And obviously the context here, afraid makes perfect sense. Someone threatens his life, he's afraid and he runs. But this is Elijah, who, uh, has been willing to stand up just the day before, right? Um, And and so, let's just say it means, and he saw, he he realizes what's going on. There's no revival here. Nothing's changed at all. And remember, what he's seeing is not just what's been going on for a few generations. He is seeing Ahab cross a line that no one had crossed before. Ahab has rejected uh, Yahweh altogether and has set up Baal and the Ashtoreth as the true religion and it appears there's going to be no repentance and so perhaps he's running in one sense because he had been uh, threatened he takes his servant they go down to Bathshe to Beersheba um, which is the southern part of Judah remember Dan to Beersheba it's like us saying New York to San Francisco the, the whole entire country so he kind of runs to the southern part of Judah, he leaves his servant there and he starts off another state journey. And it's clear that he wants to die. So, if he wants to die, Jezebel would have uh, taken care of that for him. And yet, uh, it seems like perhaps the Lord has told him, uh, no, you're not going to die, I want you to go down to Horeb, It doesn't say that the Lord told him to do that, but as he's going, remember, the angel comes and twice gives him food and says that you're, you don't have enough strength for the journey. So either Elijah is deliberately going there or the Lord tells him to go there. Uh, probably Elijah's already decided to go there, as I'll explain in a moment. <clears throat> and so while I think most commentators and even the translations assume that Elijah's having a spiritual meltdown, he's afraid and he's running, uh, they, you know, they jump on the fear factor, we might say. Um, I think there's more going on uh, than that. Let's look at it for a moment as if he realizes that he is wrong, Israel is not going to uh, turn to the Lord. What would your reaction be? And as I said, not just that, but that they have gone into full-blown covenant breaking. They have rejected Yahweh. Not just in, as Jeroboam did. In uh, he he he's claims to be worshiping Yahweh, but not really. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel aren't even trying to. He's been cast right out of the country, in a sense. So, what's his reaction? Well, no doubt he's discouraged. He, you know, he wants to die. He's he's sick of it. I'm the only one left, even though he knows technically there's at least a hundred and one guys. 100 prophets and Obadiah left. He knows that's not technically true, but he said the same thing in chapter 18. I am the only one standing against everybody else. It's a little bit of an overstatement, but he's kind of making a point, perhaps. But he's discouraged. Maybe he's fallen into a, somewhat of a depression. He's, he's kind of suicidal. He wants to die. But there's, there's an element of that. But let's let's say for a moment that the reaction is a little bit more spiritual than some seem to be willing to give him credit for. As if he's running for his life, he's scared, he's given up, or maybe there's something else going on here. Um, nowhere do we read in all this. It, let's just say if it's true that he's scared, he's running from Jezebel, he's afraid. There's nowhere in this chapter where the Lord upbraids him for that criticizes him for that, gets onto to him in any way for that. So if that's the case, to me that right there seems odd, if that's really what's going on here. Um, and I would think that if the Lord had told him to stay in northern Israel, he would have stayed there. Without doubt, he is broken by the lack of repentance, and he's bothered by Israel's rejection. Is, say, he'd rather die than see their apostasy. But, can this chapter be seen as more than just a character study of Elijah's faith? In other words, is this, is, is, is most commentators see this as the Lord kind of chiding Elijah because he's not, he's not standing up to Jezebel. And I think, again, after chapter 18, that just doesn't seem to be the point. And so in verses 3 through 4, he travels about a 100 miles to Beersheba. At that point, he's quite safe from Jezebel. He then leaves his servant, goes another day, journey into the wilderness. Um, You know, I don't think he's trying, he's worried about his servant's, you know, safety. And so he's trying to distance himself from the servant. Um, Instead of taking his life. The Lord doesn't, uh, take His life. He doesn't rebuke Him. He sends angels to minister to Him. Now, twice He does say, why, where are you going? Or why are you here? But I don't, again, a lot of the commentators take that as, well, the Lord is getting, you know, basically saying, why are you here? You should be up north. Why are you here? But that's an assumption. And maybe the Lord is, is saying, okay, what is your purpose here? And I think that makes more sense as we'll get to here in a moment. And twice he does that. And twice uh, Elijah says gives really the same answer. Um, first time is uh, down in verse 10. I have been very jealous of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Both times he says the reason I'm here is because... Uh, your people, your people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I only am left, and they see take my life, uh, as well, and he, and he repeats that later on. So he seems to be saying that I'm here, and I'm headed for Sinai, the place where the covenant was established. I'm headed there because the covenant has been broken. It certainly could be taken that way. Uh So he starts the, off on this, let's say, 200-mile journey to Sinai. Of course, it might depend on which, if it's a tr- the traditional Sinai location in, in the Sinai Peninsula or uh where I think it probably was in Mount Horeb would be over in the Arabian Desert. Either way, uh it's a long ways. And he's given t- a little meal here that lasts him 40 days um, to get to... Which, is, again, kind of connects it not just to Jesus in the wilderness, but 40 days with Moses uh, in the wilderness, too. In fact, the whole thing kind of connects it to Moses to some degree because he's going to Mount Horeb, right? And he is seeing a vision of God. And when he does finally see it, this this that whisper, he covers his pet eyes up when he talks to the Lord. So there's this a, a lot about this that reminds us about Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. And I think probably there's a reason for that. So if we think about the parallels between this and Moses. Both men come to this mountain during the time of Israel's apostasy. Remember Israel is down during Moses day. Worshipping the two golden calves. But there's one big difference. With Elijah being here now and Moses what he did back then. Moses intercedes for the people. Remember the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill them. And Moses says, well, wait just a minute. And he makes an argument against it. And intercedes, saves their lives. Uh, Elijah accuses them. As we read there in 9, verses 9 and 10, then later in verse 14, when the Lord says, what are you doing here? Elijah says, your people have broken the covenant. I think by implication he's saying, uh, when are you going to do what you promised to do? When are you going to put the curses upon them? Uh, the covenant has been broken. And this parallel might suggest we're dealing with national covenant matters of blessing and cursings rather than just a whining prophet who needs a kick in the pants, which again is kind of how the commentators see all this, that the Lord's interaction with Elijah is to kind of get him back where he should be. And I just kind of think it kind of misses the point here. Elijah has gone to the place where the covenant was ratified to hold court to see if the covenant has been broken and, uh, if, if, if God's, and it's time for God to send the curses. It's as if Elijah has a purpose in forsaking the northern tribes and it would seem that what he's doing here has divine authorization. In other words, the Lord at no time Gets on to him or tells him he shouldn't be doing this. Twice he he, he asked Elijah to state his case. Which again, it, it looks more like holding court as it were. Uh, which I entitled the, the message here, you know, Elijah holds court. And so this question by God is constantly taken to mean that he's implying that Elijah should be somewhere else. Some believe that he was fed to strengthen him so he could go back to Israel. Instead of fleeing to Sinai, but it says the angel says the journey, not not the journey back, but the journey that you're on is too much for you. Here's food for to strengthen you. So, so I, I can't see that being this idea that, that he's trying to strengthen to go back to the northern tribes. Even though, of course, later he does send them back, as we read. So, why can't it be an invitation? Instead of a rebuke, an invitation for Elijah to go down to Sinai and hold court, as it were. After all, he has come to the place where the covenant was established. And so the Lord might be saying, what about the covenant is on your mind? So what if we see verses 10 and 14 as Elijah pretty much telling it like it was. He's he's making the accusation against Israel. And generally, this is assumed to be Elijah getting on his high horse, saying, "Well, I've forsaken you, but I'm the only one who hasn't." And again, I don't think that I don't see that in there. I think that you, that's a, not the right way to look at this. Again, the Lord doesn't seem to, uh, at some point, chide him for that. After his preliminary accusation, the Lord's response was to reveal his presence in a still small voice, which is, again, mysterious, no doubt, interestingly, interesting for sure. So after he makes this accusation, the Lord then says, okay, stand here. And he, he, he runs, what does he do? All the manifestations that were uh, seen on Mount Sinai when Moses was there, earthquake, wind, fire were manifested. but it's the Lord isn't in that uh, which he was at Mount Sinai, but the Lord instead is in the whisper, in the word, in, in the quiet quietness. And as, again, it's interesting for sure, but it got to mean something. So can we not assume that Elijah is speaking the truth as he stands before the God of the Bible? Here, similar phenomena take place where the covenant was ratified. So, could we not make a case then that the covenant is being rescinded? In other words, uh, as we're gonna see here in a moment, the Lord, what does the Lord tell Elijah to do now that all this is done? He says, go back and anoint the ones who are going to bring judgment upon northern Israel. They're, they're going to begin. Syria and Jehu and Elisha are going to start to begin this process of judgment. So, so that would make sense. That it would, to me, would support this position of what's going on. So from his words, it seems Elijah is not thinking about himself but is upset because of the lack of faithfulness to the Lord. He's upset with Israel's apostasy, not that his ministry has failed. I think his ministry has been spot on. Everything he's done, you know, ending with uh, the famine and the prophets of Baal and all that, has done exactly what it intended to do. It has demonstrated who the true God is. So, from the start, it seems clear that Elijah is amazed that Mount Carmel didn't bring the nation to its knees. The fact that nothing has changed with Ahab and Jezebel's heart seems to perhaps have left Elijah with no other option but to think that, well, this is it. Now, we know, of course, that it goes on for a, a couple of hundred more years, I believe it is, before they're actually carried off into captivity. But it certainly would appear that a line is being crossed and that judgment is, uh, sure now. There's no, uh, there's no opportunity really for repentance at this point. And so the Lord says that this, uh, He sends these, these, this great manifestations by Elijah and He says, this is not though how I am going to work. That's, that's not where I am. And, and, and I think we could at least one possibility is that what's going on here is that he's saying that the the, the great manifestations of, and miracles of God, the, the way he has worked primarily in the Old Testament, is going to come to an end. Because that really doesn't do any good. Elijah, you're, you're proof of that. And I'm going to start working through the Word. Because that's how the Spirit works behind the scenes, in the heart. And so we've made the case that you have three different times of miracles in the Bible. You got the times of Moses, you got the time of Elijah and Elisha and Jesus. And so the miracles are there in in these two prophets, but it hasn't, it won't accomplish anything. But yet it's graciously in that God is giving them every reason to believe, just like Jesus comes along and gives every reason for uh, his people to believe and they reject him. And so the miracles last into the establishment of the church. God's people see them and God's people believe. But they pass away because at the end of the day, it's through the foolishness of the preaching that God is going to say, right? And so it's possible that that's kind of what's going on here. To me, that makes perhaps the most sense anyway. So his work will be done primarily through that inner voice. His work and his kingdom were always about more than physical manifestations of power. The kingdom is about the changing the hearts of men anyway. And so the days of spectacular miracles are coming to an end as the Lord will primarily work through preaching. And I think this could be confirmed by his response to Elijah's accusation the second time there in verses 15 through 18, where he agrees with Elijah's assessment and Wilson judgment upon the nation. Let's start reading in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint three people, all of which, what does he say here? The ones who escape from the one will be uh, judged by the other. The one who escaped from him will be judged by this person. No one's getting by. Judgment's coming. And I think this makes more sense than taking a 15 to 18 is God saying, Enough with your pity party, it's time for you to go back. I just don't see that in, in these words. For sure, we need to be told that from time to time. Do we have pity parties? Do we get full of ourselves? Do we get, you know, paralyzed by fear and depression? Yes. And sometimes we need a, a kick in the pants, seat of the pants. You know, by the Lord in various ways, or by our brothers or sisters in Christ, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. But is that happening here? And and I, I don't I don't really see it. It seems that God is agreeing that it, that the motions of justice are coming into place. The ESV rightly says in verse eighteen that the Lord will leave seven thousand in Israel. So it, it says, in other words, He seems to be saying that. The Lord will leave a remnant. Now, he's, he said, who will they be? Well, they'll be the ones who haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet, who haven't kissed Baal with their mouth. So they're there already, but I will leave them. so I, there's judgment coming, but I'm going to have a, a, a remnant, which is one of the things of Scripture. Is, except the Lord, leave a remnant. We'd all be a Sodom of Gomorrah, right? So, Lord, saying that judgment is coming, but I still got my people. I'm still gonna. I still have my elect. In fact, I think that's. You think about seven thousand. Seven being the, the number of completion and perfection. It speaks of the elect, my elect, whom I have chosen. They will always be there. I will protect them, even in the midst of of judgment. <clears throat> A definite number. Not that not that seven thousand will only be the the remnant, but that. It is a picture of the elect, right? And so I also think this is supported by, the, as I said before, that the fact that these are why the miracles are here. Because this is a big deal. This is a big point where uh, the covenant is being broken. Ahab has crossed the line. So let me in closing go back to verses 11 and 12 as we think about this very interesting if not mysterious portion of scripture where he says go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Remember as uh, Moses went and stood in the cleft of the rock as the Lord passed by. Behold the Lord passed by and then the great wind um, and, and the fire and, and the earthquakes and so forth. Instinctively we know that this is a great pass This is... This is, this is, gotta mean something. This isn't just a, something you just read in passing. And, uh, uh, but you don't want to just isolate it and and find some kind of practical application that that divorces it from its context. So, some would say, well, this proves that we shouldn't be brass and loud and dealing with people, but we should speak kindly and softly because the Lord does that. Well, I mean, that's, again, that's just taken out of context. The Lord doesn't mm-hmm. always do that. The Lord can be very loud. I think Mount Carmel was very loud, right? Uh, the, the, the armies mm-hmm. and the Assyrians coming down and taking them into captivity is going to be a very loud thing. So I don't think that's, uh, you know, like, trying, to, the point of all that is just so that we should be very calm and meet quiet people. I mean, you know, there's better scriptures to go to for all that. <clears throat> Some say that Elijah, had to learn that he, he did he didn't need miracles to get the work done. And that's certainly true, but I, I don't see where that's the point here. Some say that God is saying he doesn't work like Baal does, he works through spiritual means. Again, that's true. <clears throat> but again, as you think about how that he appeared to Moses in this connection, Jezebel has learned from her husband with uh, with tremendous evidence that God was a true God, but it just didn't do any good. Because Jezebel was her own God. And so evidential apologetics, which that's trying to show through evidence of science and creation, of so we trying to prove God by evidence, it's fun. And it's, it's good. Nothing wrong with it as such. But as we've said, it doesn't change hearts. Jezebel had all the evidence you could ask for. From Mount Carmel, or Na'hab, and didn't do any good. Remember, I mentioned this last week with the uh, the rich man of Lazarus, that he wanted Lazarus to be sent back to the land of the living for his brothers. And he said, Jesus said, "Well, or Lazarus, or Abraham said, they've got the Moses, and the prophets, they've got the Old Testament, they've got the Scriptures, they've got all the evidence they need." So evidential apologetics are fun and they have their place, but everybody already knows that God exists. We, we know that from Romans 1. The evidence is all around us. The question is, uh, they don't like the fact that God exists. They don't want to have to answer somebody. So that's why you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to give a new heart, to break the rebellious heart and give us a heart that will re-, re- Respond and, and bow in need of Christ. Evidence isn't going to do that. The gospel does that. <clears throat> of course we know that John, uh, 3.19. Get to it here. I don't know why it's not working here. There you go. Whoops. And this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world and people love darkness rather than light. Because it works for they they, they they see the light. They don't like the light. In that sense, <clears throat> finally, Elijah seems to teach us one more thing for certain: his passions was for the Lord, and that's what seems to consume consume him. Even if he had to pay for pray for afflictions, he wanted people to worship the true God. It is a lesson that I think for us to keep our priorities straight. Elijah was upset, not because he was the only one left, not because his, he was being threatened. It's because no one was listening. And by not listening to him, they weren't listening to God. And that's certainly any preacher uh, can, uh, can relate to that. And when, when people come in and they hear the word of God and they reject it, uh, yeah, I don't, in a sense, take it personally, because I know they're not really rejecting me. They're rejecting the Lord if I'm speaking the truth. <clears throat> so the Lord generally won't give some amazing display of his person as he did on Mount Carmel. He's speaking to us through his word. And the question is, will we listen? And I think that's, again, Elijah listened into that still small voice. And so the kingdom, uh, the God has, has gone quiet then compared to the Old Testament. In the age in which we live, you remember, he said, "The kingdom will be as yeast. It'll be hidden. It's growing. It is in, in, in it's having its effect, but it's kind of doing under the scenes." That's how the church has always been. This thing. its had times where it's been more open, but usually, in the times where it gains power, I've said this before, and becomes something that the world—that—that uh, that sense, it is not a good thing. What the church is most effective when it's being persecuted, when uh, it's it's just relying upon the Lord and preaching the gospel, when it has power, when it has showy displays, uh, I don't know that it ever ends in a, in a good thing, right? So that's I think that's in the mode that we're in. And, and perhaps that's what these verses are saying, that that's really how the Lord works. Someday he's going to come back and every, I shall see him, right? I mean, it's going to change, but right now it's through the word. And uh that's what all we should. We don't spread the gospel through the sword, through miracles. We do it through preaching. All right. Any questions? Heavenly Father, for your word and Lord, we pray that you might give us light, and clarity, and uh, good application. But may we just be able to step back sometimes and just see the way you work with men. And the, 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 the stories, the, the accounts, the, the, the things that are there. May we, Lord, have just a greater awe of our God and what you are doing. And we just pray for clarity in the next service and may you speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.